You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey, champ, gotta go. Bye, honey. I love you. Want some help? It's okay. I changed tires before. Go! Folks, welcome to a special episode of the Projection Booth. It is your old pal Mike White. I am talking today to director Stephen Shaneberg. You might remember the name from our Secretary episode. We do talk about Secretary as well as some other films, including his latest Rupture, which stars Numi Rapace and Peter Stromer, and is available on demand now. Check it out. Well, um, I don't know how much time you have, but I was hoping that we could kind of talk about some of the early days and then kind of lead up uh, through some stuff into Rupture, if that works for you. We we can talk about anything you want to talk about. It's nine o'clock in New York. My kids are asleep. My wife is in Mississippi. I'm, I'm alone in my house. It's a fantastic time of day. Uh, so I'm, I'm game to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, I want to know... Um... Growing up, were you always a fan of movies? My mother, who was a psychiatrist and probably should have known better, used to take my sister and me to crazy movies when we were, say, seven, eight, nine, ten. And and one of the birthday parties that I remember vividly from my childhood was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Midtown with me and a few friends. And I didn't really think anything of it, but looking back, you know, I sat through 2001 on 86th Street in New York when it first was released. I know, it's crazy. And my mother used to, she had patients during the day and I would come home from school and sometimes she didn't care if she went into a movie in the middle, which as a kid, I just thought, well, 
that's kind of normal. You just go whenever you have the time. So we would go into movies 40 minutes late and we would leave 10 minutes before the end because she had to get back to some patient of hers. I think somehow the movies that she took me to um, really had a powerful effect. And But I wasn't one of those kids who like, you know, picked up a movie camera when he was eight years old and had that dream of being a, a filmmaker. It, it kind of happened organically and through a whole bunch of odd series of circumstances that, that, that led in that direction. But as a kid, I, I did love going to the movies and um, having that experience. Um, but, but one thing about it is I never went to see kid movies. Like I didn't go to see animated movies. I went to the grown up movies that, like I said, I, I probably shouldn't have been seeing. I know you went to Yale. You studied English Lit and East Asian Studies. So, yeah, kind of removed from the film world. So what were those circumstances that then led you into that path? Because I know you ended up going to the AFI, pretty heavy-duty stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was – I mean, the short version of the story is I was reading Mishima, the Japanese <clears throat> writer uh, in Japanese, and I'm fascinated by him as a character and, and as a writer um, and, and as a kind of, you know, ultra Japanese, wonderful weirdo. And I saw Paul Schrader's movie um, that uh, had sort of portrayed Mishima in a particular way, but I, I was really captivated by how he had approached Mishima, who I knew a lot about. And simultaneously, I, I was taking a photography class um, that was being taught by a guy named Joel Sternfeld, who's a very wonderful American filmmaker, uh, sorry, photographer. And he had a very strong effect on me. And um, so these things were happening simultaneously. And my intention had been to go to Japan and I had a job teaching there and uh, I had all sorts of um, thoughts about how that was going to potentially shape my future. And I went to LA on the way to Japan and um, I was just going to be in LA for like a few weeks or something. And I had some friends out there and I went to see blue velvet and I came out of blue velvet with my mind completely blown. And I said, uh, I'm not going to Japan. I'm going to stay in Los Angeles. I gave up my teaching job and I'm going to go to work on movies. And I remember I called my dad and I told him this. And this was just the kind of dad I had who said, that sounds like a great new plan. Let's see what we can do to help you. So, <laughs> you know, there was no like I was really nervous about it. And I thought, well, you know, I've got this fellowship teaching at a university and Yale has like gone out, you know, and really kind of helped me with that. And there was also there was a whole life awaiting me. And uh, but I came out of Blue Velvet and something had happened to me, which, uh, you know, I mean, in, 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 in subsequent years, I've, I've to some extent come to understand it, but it just had a profound, beautiful effect on me. And it's, it, it is the number one movie in my head that I always go back to and I show my, you know, DP and designer and, and, and I always use it as a, as a reference point to sort of, say, you know, this is what's so beautiful about this. How do we understand what we're trying to do now uh, in that context? So so that's the short version of how I started doing this. 
horrible profession that you know is nothing but pain and suffering. How do you go from attending the AFI and and making your films there to making something like uh, Hit Me? And I'm also curious, when was your first exposure to Jim Thompson? Well, I had actually read Thompson when I was really young. And um, he was somebody that I was very interested in because he wrote from a crazy uh, point of view, from inside the character's uh, crazy point of view. And so um, he was always playing around in my in my head. But before I went to the AFI, I was working with a producer in L.A. Um, and it hooked up with him in a, a, just a series of coincidences. And I said to him, hey, have you ever read Jim Thompson? And he said, no. You know, so I exposed him to Jim Thompson. And we looked into the rights to Jim Thompson. And we actually ended up acquiring five books. Uh, we had the option. We had the option on five of them, and we we developed um, several of them, and we tried to set them up as series at the time, and we tried to like we imagined a sort of Jim Thompson series on HBO, and um, then we were developing them individually, and then I went to the AFI, and when I came out of the AFI, I was talking to him, and I said, you know, I think I think I could take that book and turn it into something kind of interesting, and. Um, at that point, all the options had lapsed, but I had a good relationship with the agent for Jim Thompson's estate and he gave it to me. So, but I knew I could do it really cheaply, you know, sort of with my friends from AFI, which is how we did it. It was a feature that I could see in my head and I, I knew, you know, no one was going to give me a, a pile of dough to, to make a film. So we just made that movie and, you know. The same way a movie like Moonlight gets made, you know, you pay your crew a hundred bucks a week or whatever you pay them and, you know, you kind of bond together and um, it was a blast, you know, that was a really, that was a great fun time. You just had some amazing actors in there. I've, I've always sung the praises of Elias Codius on the show and then, I mean, William H. Macy, every, everybody in there is, is firing on all cylinders. It was just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. remarkable to see these actors in this film and then they were pitch perfect as well when it came to their performances and especially capturing that that madness that Thompson would bring to his yeah. his work. The Thompson estate and the, the remaining family um look at that movie as the one that's the closest to actually a Jim Thompson spirit. Like they think, they think that that's the one, you know, I, I think, I think Jamie Foley got it pretty good. And after dark, my sweet, you know, the, the movie is, is, is probably too pretty for Jim Thompson, uh, you know, adaptation. It just, just looks a little bit too much like a commercial, but the, the underlying spirit of the movie, uh, of that movie and the, the feeling of Jason Patrick uh, is pretty good in that one too. I mean, uh, you know, I, I had made a movie um, in at AFI that um, had some really great performances in it. So I got an agent off of that film at the time. And I think when actors looked at that film, we had something kind of powerful to show um, that really had some unusual work in it. And really, I mean, it sort of rolled since then, you know, as far as actors go, all the movies I'm trying to make now um, with really great producers, we, you know, 
the performances and the connection to actors has always just kind of been very naturally there for me. You know, I, I love them and I, you know, really feel for them and, and I'm in it because that's what I want from the experience for them and for myself. So that I think, you know, that's sad to say that that's kind of unusual, but I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of it too. You know, that like if you pay attention to actors and how they feel and that actually matters to you, uh, you're giving them a, a pretty unique experience that, that they really should be having all the time, you know, but, but they don't. So, yeah. How did uh, secretary come to you? Did you read the story first or, or, or what happened with that? Well, what happened is when I was at AFI, I read Mary Gateskill's book and I was, I was just totally, completely blown away and I, I loved it. And I made a 28 minute version of secretary as a short at AFI. And, um, what was interesting about it is the short that I made was very true to the spirit and the psychology and the meaning of Mary's movie, uh, Mary, Mary's short story. It was very dark, very morose. It was very, very creepy. And I had that short. I had it in hand. And when I came out of AFI, after I made Hit Me, I went, I went back and I looked at it. And I knew right away, this is not a feature film. You can't do this um, and make a completely depressed girl's destruction at the hands of a sadomasochistic lawyer. You know, I, I don't want to make that, and I don't think anybody wants to see it. But, but most importantly, I don't want to make that. Um, it's too. Uh, it's too. It's not just that it's too negative. I, I think it's something of a cliche. Um, in terms of sadomasochism, it's it's really the obvious way that people see sadomasochism as a kind of destructive force in people's lives and so on and so forth. I didn't really know how to flip it, but I saw Jane Campion's movie, Sweetie, which is a comedic take on basically having a bipolar or even schizophrenic family member. But she made it funny and she made it playful and she made it compassionate. And I also saw Mike Lee's movie, Life is Sweet. So I saw Sweetie and Life is Sweet. And those two movies, and, and, and Life is Sweet, Mike Lee's movie deals with some very crazy stuff as well, but in this kind of light way. And those two films I saw maybe within like two weeks of each other. And they flipped the switch in my mind and I said, oh, I see it. I see how to do it. I see what the tone can be. And I also see that rather than the experience in a lawyer's office being something that destroys the girl, it can actually be a kind of love story that liberates her. When that flip was, switch, was switched and I kind of you know, did a 180 on what the story was, then I was free and, and the whole thing could evolve. But that was the key to it, you know, to, to be able to see it in a different way. And it's, it's helped me, you know, it's helped me a lot in terms of um, asking the question about scripts in general or developing something or writing the movies I'm writing. What is the other way it could be? You know, you, you have a first thought, you have a second thought, you have a thir third thought that are to some extent conditioned by the world we live in and, and, and 
what's what's interesting to me is to see the other side of it and be open to the other side of it. Um, so that 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 was sort of the beginning of it. Do you meet uh, Aaron Cressida Wilson, and what's your relationship working with her? Um, you remember Scorsese's movie After Hours? Oh yeah. Yeah, so Joe Minion, who wrote that movie, he and I became friends at one point in life, and we tried working on a secretary script out of this realization that I've had, and I adored Joe, Joe and, and, but it was going nowhere, and, and ultimately we parted ways on it, and I tried it with like a couple other people, and I was talking to this somewhat legendary and now uh, a bit older uh, film executive named Jack Leshner. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy, and he bounced around a lot, and he's um, incredibly smart and very thoughtful and very sensitive. And he called me up one day, and he said, hey, you know, you ought to meet this girl, Aaron Cressler Wilson, because it was Jack calling. He said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll go. He wasn't intending anything. He's like, you two should meet each other. I don't know what will come of it, but you should meet. And so we went and we met, and we became great pals right away. And out of that, um, she was, and, and she was a terrific playwright dealing with a lot of subterranean sexual stuff a, a lot of which is fantastic um, and it was getting performed in you know small theaters in san francisco and and she had never written a screenplay and i said look let's try this and that was the beginning of our of our relationship the adaptation is done so well and then of course I do love that it is a love story that you did turn everything kind of on its head. And it is one of the most positive portrayals of a BDSM relationship that I, you know, there are few that uh, equal that one on screen. I think that uh, Haneke made an amazing movie out of the piano teacher. It's fantastic. And Isabel Huppert is, you know, totally riveting and compelling, but that's the movie I didn't want to make. You know, the, the movie where the female character's sadomasochism leads to her madness and her destruction. And, as, you know, as great a movie as it is, when I came out of it, uh, I just thought, yeah, that's what everybody thinks. You know, that, that's what people think that, you know, you've got to be a kind of lunatic to be involved in those sorts of things. If you don't have the right actors, you know, you can make the same camera move and you can make the same sets and you can have Angelo Badalamente do the score. But if you don't have the right actors with the right inherent tone, the movie won't work. So, you know, we were uncannily fortunate to have Maggie Gyllenhaal and and Jimmy Spader, but certainly to have this girl who no one had ever seen. You know, that was it. I could only cast her after the other 30 girls on the list cast and said, I'm not going to play that part. You know, <laughs> you know, I had to work my way through every single girl that would ever be on a list. They all had to pass before I could make the argument. This girl will be great. You know, like he, like he says in Mulholland Drive. This <laughs> That's is the girl. The girl. <laughs> <laughs> this is the girl. Well, that had to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it had to have been kind of a, a thrill to work with Angelo Badalante after your, your, uh, such a, a, a wonderful experience seeing Blue Velvet. Well, it was insane. I mean, I, I said to the music supervisor, I don't know, you know, do you think we could get Angelo Badalamente? She's like, I, I don't know. And um, 
we sent him the movie. Uh, and what was funny is he, if I remember right, I believe he wouldn't look at the film with temp tracks. So, and, and you know, that's like just sending like a naked picture of yourself after you've eaten a pizza, you know, like what you can't do that. And he came back and he's like, I have to do this movie. And I never, and I never met him, you know? Um, but he, he, that was the thing, you know, like, um, the, the relationship between like my take on the material, you know, which is to say like all the aesthetic decisions and Mag Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader's faces and sense of rhythm, they fit perfectly with his tone. So, you know, again, it's just, it's just like one of those things, you know, the, that you've got to get lucky and get lucky again and get lucky again. And, and then you got to get it right. If you, if you're lucky enough to have those people to, to help you, you know, and, and by the way, I had a producer who totally believed in me. So that was the other thing, you know, I wasn't getting fucked with by producers who wanted something other than what I was doing. You know, he just wanted me to make the film I wanted to make. And that was really yeah, I mean, how often does that happen? Your leads were incredible, but then just the supporting people. I mean, Jeremy Davies has always been a favorite. Favorite Leslie Ann yeah. Warren, Stephen McHattie. I mean, again, yeah. you, you're just dealing with these people who are always knocking it out of the park. The fun's in the supporting cast. <laughs> you know, those are those are parts like you know you really do get to cast those parts. I mean, in the, in the case of, uh, uh, of, of secretary and certainly Maggie Gyllenhaal, you know, as I say, we only got to cast her because everyone else said no. And James Spader was, was fantastic in the sense that he, he, he said to me, who do you want for the girl? And I said to him, look, you know, don't make any judgments. It's a girl you've never seen before, but I want you to look at our audition tape. And I sent it over to him and he called me up that night. And he said, man, this girl's going to be amazing. Yes, I'll do it with her. So he was supportive of that, which, you know, now is, is very difficult to achieve because the agents and the managers are always questioning, you know, is the other actor on a par value wise and star meter wise and all this other horseshit that, you know, my client should be in a movie with them. This was kind of before that whole thing started at the at the agencies and everywhere else once you're past the we have to deliver a certain level of foreign value with the first lead and the second lead and the third lead then you're into these supporting parts where i'll tell you one thing about rupture that was very interesting on that level and that is that we went to canada and we had to cast a lot of parts out of canada and i said to the casting director um, and this was to some extent out of necessity, but it was also out of curiosity. Um, I said, listen, we might have written on the page 35-year-old African-American, or we might have written on the page a 62-year-old British woman. Ignore every single description, every single character, every single gender, every single ethnicity. I just want to see your best actors. I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they're black or white or Asian or whatever they are. I want to see the people who you find the most interesting. It doesn't matter to me what they are. And then I will make a collage out of that and we'll push and pull and we'll see who combines well and who can work for what. So actors came in for one part and I would whisper to Andrew Lazar, the producer or the casting director. No, 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 you know, he's not right for that. 
but what about if we just put him in this other thing? Let's try him for that tomorrow. And that was a really interesting way to, to, to do it, you know, to just be totally open and to sort of give up your preconceived ideas about how old is this character? Well, why do they have to be what we thought when we wrote it? I'm more interested, like, you know, and this was to some extent, as I say, of necessity because we were in a relatively small pool in Toronto and I could not bring actors from the States. So I really was saying, I just want to see the best actors who are in Toronto. That's what I care about. So, you know, that, 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 that was a good solution. Well, who were some of those roles or how did some of those things kind of switch around as far as this person was going to read for this and they ended up being in this other role? The guy who plays the creepy doctor who gives Naomi Rapace the shot with the orange liquid. So Ari Millen came in first for the part that Peter Stormare played. He came in for that part. And I said, no, 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 this guy's not right for that. But let's, because he doesn't have that sort of ethereal quality that, that Peter had, you know, that I, that I knew I wanted there. But let's try him somewhere else. And we tried him in a couple of other places until we found him in that spot. And like, I'll give you one other example. The Asian woman who has a small moment, but she's really super creepy. And she has this like, she has this fantastic haircut. She actually came in for the Leslie Manville so, and, and I didn't have Leslie Manville in mind at all at that time. So she came in for that and I said, oh, she's very interesting. Very, her energy is very strange. And, you know, one of the things about the criteria that we were working with in Rupture was that all of these people had to have had some kind of rupture in their own real life. We had to feel in the room that some incredible difficulty had been dealt with and sort of transformed by them into something else, that they had gone through that experience. So lots of good actors would come in and they would leave and I would turn to Lazar, the producer, and, and I'd say, nah, no rupture, right? And he'd say, yeah, no rupture. And they'd be perfectly interesting actors, but we were looking for a group that you could, as a group, feel there was something otherworldly about them. And part of that just had to do with intelligence. You know, like they had to all be really smart. And as a group, they are, you know, like they're, you, you feel that from them. You feel that they're all smart people in the room. So, and that was important, you know, for Numi to be experiencing that, that, you know, she had kind of met her match um, at this place. Uh, so, you know, it was it was it was an interesting movie to cast on that level because it was a quality, you know, be, because otherwise, how how do you choose these people? You know, it was a pretty good it was a pretty good barometer to make a group of supporting players. Obviously, after Secretary, you you did uh, a f for a few years after that, and mm -hmm. then it's been a, a while since you've mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. directed a feature film. Though I know you've produced yeah. some things in the meantime. Yeah. You know, I've have talked with a lot of independent directors over the years, yeah. or directors of independent film, I should say. There's one line that my uh, friend Keith Gordon always says. He's he's a part-time director, full-time fundraiser. Is that kind of what ended up happening with you? Is it that the independent market is not yeah. necessarily there anymore, and now you have to work in other ways in order to get your films made? 
we could do two long conversations about the state of the industry and, and what's happened. The shorter version of an answer to that is um, after I finished fur, um, my wife got pregnant and I made a decision, just sort of a profound decision within myself to spend the first five years of my older daughter's life with her and to, you know, and to, to have that experience for myself and for her and also to form a relationship with her that would be important and meaningful. And subsequently, two years later, we had another daughter. You know, it, it was something that um, really sort of came out of my feeling for my wife and my family and, and, and all of that. In the meantime, I had written a movie called The Big Shoe, which Andrew Lazar, the producer of Rupture, um, I got involved with him um, as the producer on that film. And that movie dragged me uh, to the lower depths of hell um, in, in many, many ways. And it's, a, it's very much a secretary-like movie. It's very funny. It's very playful. It's very beautiful. Um, it's emotionally complicated and it's sexy and it's perverted and lots of actors wanted to do it. And if you go online, you'll see that many actors were attached to it and the movie nearly got made three times. And after it fell apart the third time, that's when I turned to a genre film. But in the meantime, between fur and rupture, I had written or developed eight movies and all of them have every single one of them has great producers on it. Some of them have terrific actors attached. Um, one of them has its money just needs a star. And, um, all of these projects now exist and have existed. The big shoe being one of them and we can't get any of them made. I'm not, I'm not saying that like we won't get them made, but we have like, Academy Award winning producers um, and Academy Award nominated producers on all of them, every single one of them. And um, it just speaks to, and you know, they're all movies. Rupture is really, um, except for one of them, kind of an outlier insofar as all the other movies are what I would call movies about people, just movies about people in one way or another. And they're a varying, you know, very deliberately, there are varying complexity and varying budget ranges. Um, there's a big budget movie, there's a low budget movie. It's very hard to get them made. That's what I would say. I just wanted to tell you a, um, a, a silly story about fur. Yeah. I had a, uh, a coworker of mine uh, come into work one day uh, quite a few years ago and was telling me about this movie and just how weird it was and how much they didn't like it. <laughs> and at the very end, they said, I didn't like it at all, but I think you'd like it. You should see this movie. And so. <laughs> tracked it down and sure enough i really enjoyed the film but uh yeah i was just like okay my my reputation precedes me <laughs> well you know it's uh hey it's you know nothing that i'm ever going to make is for everybody you know it all depends on like how big an audience do you want you know it's like do you want to have the same audience that george lucas has or do you want like Derek Jarman's audience? You know, do you want Jonas Lucas's audience or are you somewhere in between? I mean, how many people are you supposed to connect with when, you know, 
we can't all be Taylor Swift and we sure as hell don't want to be, you know? So I don't, I'm not really too uptight. Uh, I never was. Maybe it's been to some extent to my detriment because when I, when I have to answer the question posed by financiers, and this is something Keith Gordon can probably connect with, and I'm sure you can, you know, when I'm posed the question by financiers, who is the audience for this film? No matter what film I'm talking about trying to get made, I always have the same answer. I'm the audience. You know, I have something in my mind that I want to see. It's like a splinter in my eye. I want to pull it out. And until I do, I'm in pain. I can pull it out. I'll feel a lot better. But I have it in my head. It looks a certain way. It feels a certain way. And it's going to make you feel something one way or another. Maybe you'll connect with it. Maybe you won't. But I need to see it in a certain way. And my job is to just get it as close to that as I can. I don't, I can't say who the audience is, you know? Um, I mean, if you had told me that like people were going to love secretary and that it was going to like have a kind of cult following and all that I said, man, I just want to make this movie. Cause like, I love these characters and I feel like I know them and I think I can do it in a way that's my own. That's it. That doesn't go over very well in the meetings. <laughs> I got to get, you know, you know, I was just listening to that rap and trying to convince myself of it. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, I wouldn't give that guy money. I don't, you know, the thing is, the thing is, like, I hate what Keith Gordon said because it's so horribly true. And I don't want to be that guy. You know, like, I'll just give you an, I'll give you an example. Okay, this actually steered me and maybe it'll steer you too. I'm working with Bill Chardoff, the producer of, you know, his father produced Raging Bull and all the Rocky movies and Bill produced Creed, you know, which was kind of beautiful. And, um, you know, he's, he's a, he's a really wonderful guy and he's, you know, he's about our age. Um, and he said to me offhandedly, like about two months ago, he said, just offhandedly, how long do you think we're going to be sending scripts to agents and managers and actors and waiting for reads? Like how, how much longer are we going to do that? You know, and, and it was like a, just an offhand comment, but it's, it's, it actually almost took my breath away. It felt like somebody had punched me and I'm, I've been thinking about it ever since, you know, because, well, you know, how much longer can we, can we wait for three months and then get a response from the agent? It's a pass without a meeting or a conversation, like no voice to express well, I'm not quite sure you got what this movie is about that I sent you, you know, I don't know, man. It's, it's that, you know, that's where like, you know, um, I mean, the, 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 the that's the, the, the sort of endless, um, you know, rat or mouse wheel that at some point you just want to say, I, I don't, you know, I want to make the movies. I really do. But like the process is just, I want to know a little bit more about the journey for Rupture, because this has to feel a little weird to you, because here we are talking in April of 2017, when your premiere was at Fantasia, July 2016. So that means you're making this movie, what, early 2016, maybe late 2015? I mean, this must feel like a distant memory almost to you. Well, I've certainly got my head in several other movies, you know. But, you know, the, the, the feeling of the movie what Numi Rapace's experience in the movie is, is not a distant memory because I feel it every day. So, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to like invent my connection to what's going on for her. 
Um, but, but, you know, I, I do think that this particular movie falls in between the expected genre experiences of a psychological thriller or horror movie or, uh, I don't know, a David Lynch film if he made a real horror movie. It was not, to some extent, um, embraced by mainstream distributors because it's unusual in its tone and uh, certainly in what's going on. But And in the essential meanings of the movie, I, I think we're not particularly uh, grasped, but it, it simply was not perceived as having commercial viability, which I, I, I really, that I did find surprising. I mean, particularly because I made it with the hope that it would. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I very intentionally ended the movie the way I did because I wanted to spin into rupture too, you know, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's blatant, you know, that like the, the hope of the ending is we're going to make another one of these. Um, so I was really surprised that, um, you know, it, 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 it was not perceived by say any of the studios or any of the even distributors like a 24 or, or, um, Lionsgate or, or anybody else um, as having the possibility of a larger audience. So we had to go, just to go back to your question, we had to go through that process, you know, with CAA screening the film and getting people in and having those conversations and then trying to, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff that has to go on to convince the distributor to buy it. And, you know, it, it, it isn't a movie that can play, um, you know, uh, most mainstream film festivals because of what it is. Well, it could have played Midnight Madness, I guess, at Sundance, but they rejected it. So, you know, the movie has sort of stumbled its way towards what, what, where it is. And to some extent, I think it's kind of where it should be, which is, you know, Lots of movies go out in a very small way and end up on demand, and they're really interesting. So I'm not I'm not worried about that so much, but I, I will say that my my hopes and dreams were violently dashed yet again. <laughs> yeah, but that'll lead to something good, you know. I'm a firm I'm a firm believer in in you know using what you've experienced. That's what I would say. So this is just an experience that I don't know. I had read that this had roots in an idea that you're working on uh, for like a found footage type of uh, horror film. I'm very good friends with, uh, with Brian De Palma and he and I used to have lunch together like every two weeks for years. And one day he called me up and he said, Hey, uh, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I, I don't know. What are you offering? And he said, let's go, see, let's go see paranormal activity. Like, oh man, okay. So we went to see Paranormal Activity. I think it was at the end of its run, and there were like three other people. And Brian has this wonderful habit of, in full voice, talking his way through every movie. But it's really interesting to hear. So it's both it's it's both embarrassing and wonderful, right? So um, I was totally happy. I didn't care, you know. But he he just was ripping it, ripping it, ripping it, and he hated the movie. Just thought it was ridiculous. And I kind of came out of it. And I just thought, I don't know. There's something here that's interesting to me. And I had been reading 
for some ridiculous reason. Um, these accounts that this guy at Harvard has done of people who say they have been abducted by aliens. Because I have been curious about what the psychological dementia is that they actually believe they've had these experiences because I simply don't believe they have. But lots of them say they were taken up to the spaceship and aliens stuck a catheter up their penis and removed their semen and created a strange flower or whatever it is, you know, something crazy like that. And these two things melded in my head. And I thought, well, what if you called me up one day and you said, hey, man, go to YouTube. There's 40 minutes of footage on an alien ship of an American guy who got abducted. And they had a video camera there. And finally, they've given us the video, right? So that was the start of just the idea of it. And I, I played with that for a while. And I realized, you know, pretty quickly that I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who can do that because I want to make something that looks beautiful. And, you know, like I want to frame it. And I want to stage it. And I, I don't want to make a movie where somebody sets a video camera down on a bureau and photographs two people sleeping in bed. You know, it's like, that's not my thing. But, but I did, I got curious about the idea, like somebody taken somewhere where there are aliens and, and, and he or she doesn't know what's going on. But I will also say just for what it's worth, I just climbed up some stairs. Um, I always loved Tashi Gahara's movie, Woman in the Dunes. I love that movie. And if you look at the list of films that I have, you know, like, hey, someday make a movie about two dancers or whatever. On that list, there's always like, what's my captivity movie? It's always there, like, off coming off of Woman in the Dunes. You know, because, the, you know, or say Misery, you know, the Stephen King adaptation. The abduction puts somebody in a vulnerable position and a intense relationship can evolve from that. And so I was always captivated by that idea um, because, it, uh, because of the energy it gives off, what you can experience in that room with somebody being held. Um, you know, and so all of these things sort of came together um, it, it, with, the, with, with the essential idea of, of rupture. Your sense of pacing with the film and the whole idea, and I don't want to give away too much to, to yeah. folks listening, but the reveal and withhold and the reveal and the withhold, it is done so well. I'm curious, what was your relationship like with, um, why am I forgetting your, your, your Brian Nelson, yeah, Brian yeah. Nelson on yeah, this Brian one? Nelson, yeah. Well, we, you know, um, <laughs> we went to <laughs> this funny thing where, I was, you know, working out some of the ideas and putting stuff down on paper and kind of constructing a, a basic story. And I, I, I called up Lazar and I said, um, I want to work with this guy, David Ives, who wrote the play Venus and Fur that Polanski made into a movie with his wife. And I, I, had, I, I knew David and he was a, he's a good friend and he's an absolute friggin' genius, incredibly clever and funny and wonderful. And David and I kind of worked on it for a little while. And then Lazar came to New York and we all had lunch and David left and Lazar looked at me and said, are you out of your fucking mind, man? 
you can't. This guy is like one of the most like sophisticated playwrights in the history of America. We need a genre guy. And I kind of like, you know, a, a, a couple of beads of sweat went down my back and I realized that he was right. So we, so we, I, you know, and David, I think knew what Lazar was saying to me. Like, I think he knew it before I did and probably before Lazar did. But in any case, we looked at a bunch of kind of, and, and I said, okay, like, that's fine by me. You know, I'll read a bunch of stuff if you have some suggestions. And we alighted upon Brian Nelson, who had written some terrific genre stuff. And he and I, he and I beat it back and forth um, a lot. I mean, just, we, we really worked well together and he's incredibly um, flexible and willing to try things in, um, in a different way and, 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 and hung in with us the whole, the whole time as I kind of relentlessly rewrote a, and, you know, sent him back pages. And, and it was just a really wonderful experience and collaboration. So, um, but it did, t- it did take us a while to hone in and to, to make the shape of it. Um, you know, like to me, the great version of this movie is where all information is withheld. Like that's the re- that's the art piece of the movie. And the the challenge, just as you're noting, was to see for me. And one of the kicks was how long can you be there with her in that situation? How long can I really hold your attention, even when you don't know anything? That's really what the experience of the movie is about. The experience is about how you don't know anything. She doesn't know who she really is. She doesn't know what she really is. And so you have to enter that space of not knowing anything. You have to, the audience has to experience that for the movie to be an experience. That was the challenge. And that made it exciting to make. That, that fact of it made it, made it really fun to make. Um, but yeah, you got to pare back the uh, how much you reveal to the audience and when you reveal it. You know, um, the the financiers on this film were not studio uh, executives, you know, and so they were open to to this approach that I was taking. You know, if you made this as a studio movie, you got to give the information exactly as it's expected and blah blah blah. You know, all that all that stuff. I hate all that shit and. You know, that's that's why the movie is the way it is. That's why it feels the way it does, because that's what we're used to. We're used to, you know, like, oh, you know, well, you, you don't really understand what's going on. Let me clarify it for you so that you feel like you're in a safe space. Yeah, this movie makes people nervous. That's what I that's what I want you to feel. Over the last three films, you've had three really strong female leads in this, which is pretty unusual uh, in this horrible climate of, of not having good roles for female actors. And here you are with Secretary Fur and Rupture and working with three amazing actresses in these roles. You have to match the internal vibe of the actor with what you have in mind for what the movie is. People who just, for example, wanted a straight ahead Dean Arbus biopic, their initial reaction was, or would have been, and, and, and certainly a lot of people felt this way. She doesn't look anything like Dean Arbus. Like that was where that was my starting point. Like, I, you know, 
we, we, we are not doing that. We're doing something entirely different. You know, like if I had given you somebody who looked exactly like Dean Arbus and you knew who Dean Arbus was and you knew what she looked like, the rest of the movie would have been an effort to wrench you away from like even further the thought that like you were going to get a straight ahead, you know, a birth to death biopic of, of, of the great photographer Dean Arbus. Like I didn't want to make that movie. So, you know, you these decisions are number one, hopefully based on those kinds of uh, aesthetic and emotional uh, considerations. And, and then there is, of course, the aspect of who can you get? Who, who will do the movie? Who will respond to me as a director or you as a director? Who will say yes to you? And then there's just luck. Who's available? And, and you know, who did the producer know? And who can you get to? You know, who will who will be open to you for their own reasons in life? You know, like I, I love when I talk to producers and they say, you know, let's say we're talking about, I don't know, Charlize Theron. And they say, this part is perfect for Charlize Theron. Uh, she's got to do this. It's a great part for her. And I always say, we don't know what's going on in Charlize Theron's life. We, we have no idea what's in her mind right now. You know, we can't say what a perfect part is for her. Like, you know, she might want to do a part that's entirely different because, you know, she just broke up with her husband or she just had a kid or whatever it is. You know, we, we don't, we can't say why an actor will respond to something. We might think we have an idea that somebody would be great for something, but it's just, you know, it's such a endlessly um, unknown situation that, you know, I, I used to, when I was a bit younger, if I had an actor who had said yes, and then I lost them for whatever reason, they walked away from the project. Like this happened on the big shoe with Joaquin Phoenix. I always think now it used to devastate me. It used to just break my heart because I'd become so attached to that actor in my mind as part of it. And maybe we developed a relationship, but now I think, oh, this is just going to open up something else that I'm not even aware of. Maybe it's going to be a better movie. You know, something else is going to happen now that, um, you know, may be more beautiful than what I had imagined. The casting process is fraught with so many things that are outside your control that, you know, I, I try now to like the river, you know, like if a, produ a producer knows an actor that could work in it, maybe I'm open to hearing what that actor has to say. I want to get that read. I want to take that meeting because the producer has access to that person, you know, and then, and then of course, as you well know, as directors, then we posture down. Once the movie's done, we're like, well, I was the perfect person for the movie. Of course I got that person. You know, like I, my, one of my favorite things is to watch the Academy Awards and look at the directors who have like, you know, barely survived production and all the relationships that are involved. And, and yet they're sitting there as if like, well, I was completely in control of the entire movie the whole time. And I made exactly what I wanted to make. It's like, what the fuck? No way, man. <laughs> we talk about it as if it's not this like crumbling Lego building. That's like barely attached, you know, and that, that is what it is. You had been working with Numi on another project before this one came yeah. up. Was she working on the Big Shoe, or was that something yeah. else? Well, she, yeah, no, she wanted. There's a there's a part in the Big Shoe for a kind of aesthetically 
sophisticated shoe fetishist psychiatrist. She works with people who are in the foot world, and that is her professional life. And she's this kind of wonderfully sexy and manipulative person. And originally, Amy Adams was going to play the part, and then Juliette Binoche was going to play the part, and now Elizabeth Banks is going to play the part. And it's a part that Numi had wanted, along with a lot of other people wanted the part, um, because it's a great role. And I met with her on it, and just was completely, totally captivated by her. She's one of the most unusual vibrating creatures that walks around on two legs. She's just a very unusual force. And when we went to cast rupture, in this case, she was the first choice. And to some extent in my mind, although I would never have said this to the producers or financiers, to some extent she was the only choice. I just didn't have I just didn't see another person with her kind of ferocity and intelligence and, and capacity to, to sustain herself through the shoot and, and to sort of um, be, be in it the way she's in it. I mean, there's a few shots, I think, in Rupture where when we looked at them in dailies, her eyes look like she's just gone completely crazy. You know, a, a little bit like, you know, the way Catherine Deneuve looks in, in Repulsion at times. You know, she just looks like she's unhinged and in, in those in, in some real way. And I, and, and honestly, I, I think there were moments where she was really deeply, deeply in it. Um, and I just didn't really know if somebody else who was going to get to that place. You know, somebody else could have played the role. But I also wanted to reverse the, you know, it's a, it's a damsel in distress movie in a, in a lot of ways. And that tends to be a pale skinned blonde. For, for various reasons, one of them being the way they take light, you know, in scary places can be very beautiful. I really wanted to reverse that and go with somebody very powerful, not fragile and, and dark haired and kind of deeply mysterious rather than innocent and, and all of those things. And so her being the way she is took care of all that, you know, she, she just solves all those problems. Some of the things that she does, especially, I'm trying to say this without giving stuff away, especially towards the end with that mask, yeah, that was oh, an amazing, amazing sequence. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, yeah, that was crazy to do that thing, man. It was nuts. But um, one thing I'll tell you that was interesting, and I didn't anticipate this at all, is that we went up to Toronto and we started designing stuff and then the whole thing was built on a stage, the whole place. And, you know, I started designing the gurney and I started designing a lot of um, just the mechanical stuff. And I came back to my hotel room and I realized how uncomfortable and frightened I was to put her through the experience that I was going to put her through because I was perpetrating it on somebody that I really care about and, and adore. I'm not the kind of person who wants to do that to somebody else. My inclination is to be affectionate and caring. And I was afraid that because of that, I wasn't going to push her take to take to take, moment to moment to moment, shot to shot to shot, that I had to confront that 
aspect of the experience within myself that I naturally felt uncomfortable in. And that was a very interesting thing because, um, you know, I remember when the producers of uh, Diving Down the Butterfly sent me the book and I read the book and my thought and only thought was, this is maybe the most horrible experience I personally can imagine. This can only be a horror film. And I went and I met with them and I said all these things. And I remember him saying, no, this is about the triumph of the imagination. And I, and I thought, you're insane. I, this guy, you know, is having the most horrible thing that could possibly happen to him happen. And then Julian Schnabel went and made, I think, one of the most unbelievably inventive and, and courageous and super cool movies ever. And I looked at the movie and I was like, I could never have made that movie because I was too afraid. And I had that thought in that few weeks before making Rupture that I have to use this movie to stop being cynically unengaged with things that frighten me. You know, I have to, maybe it's better if I'm engaged with things that do frighten me, you, you know? And so the movie was very useful in that way. And, you know, like you were saying, you know, well, you made it a while ago, but that's true. But I'm, but I'm very much engaged in that idea. For me, it's an important idea. I, I, I think that there's, something to be gained in the discomfort, something to be challenged in discomfort. Like, you know, if you see Michael Haneke's movie Amour, um, woman has a stroke, basically takes place in her and her loving husband's apartment. I mean, it's, you know, I couldn't watch that movie for a very long time. I finally watched it and I said, this is incredibly beautiful. It is about love. I don't know. That's just where my head's at now, you know, in terms of uh, what is worthwhile. Why do this rather than the other thing, you know? How did Kareem Hussein and you come up with the look for this particular film? Because this looks different than anything else I've seen you do. We went up to Canada, and the only uh, crew person that I could bring was Jeremy Reed, the designer. Everybody else had to be Canadians. And we met a bunch of DPs, including Adam McGoyne's DP and Cronenberg's DP. And uh, everybody wanted to do the film. And this young guy came in who had shot uh, a movie called Antiviral, which is an absolutely stunning-looking uh, movie made by Cronenberg's son, Brennan. Beautiful. And he came in, and he had this amazing wrap-down about rupture. And I'd never met him. I'd never heard of him. And I, I said to um, whoever was there, you know, hey, let's get Antiviral and take a look at it tonight. And uh, I did, and I just couldn't believe the way the movie looked. I, I was just like... To be a DP and shoot that film the way he shot it just took such balls and such inventiveness and, and also consistency. Really, really hard movie to, to make uh, look the way he made it look. And um, I just completely fell in love with him. He's just an absolute miracle of a, of a person and a, and a DP. And um, he, he had shot several other films, which I then went and looked, all of which looked totally different. But the, the essential um, creative moment for Rupture came when I realized these people wear these contact lenses and their eyes are very sensitive. So what does that mean about the world that they've created for themselves? That frees you from the reality of, say, a, you know, worn out warehouse 
It frees you from the reality of real hallways. You then are free to say they made a place where their eyes feel better. So one of the questions that you ask then is, um, what would they paint the walls to make their eyes feel better? And one of the things that Kareem and I came up with um, was probably his idea, but it came out of these conversations was that these are people from somewhere else who have these sensitive eyes and therefore uh, lighting fixtures are never in a normal position or place. They're never at the height that you as an audience are used to experiencing fixtures. They're either too low or they're at too much of an angle or they're too high or they're, they're positioned in a strange way. So light is always falling in a way that you are not used to seeing it fall. And so that was very freeing and um, allowed us to say we can make our own rules. Like, for example, in many of the shots, they, these, this group of people at the facility, have placed fixtures on the floor and shot them right up to the ceiling. You see the fixtures on the floor. They pass by them because we made rules that allowed for that kind of freedom within this set. And that was the same kind of freedom that we had for colors and so on and so forth. So one of the things that I try to rip my head away from is reality because I'm not interested in the recreation of reality. I think that that's a perfectly legitimate thing for movies to do, but I don't want to do that. You know, when Kyle MacLachlan goes into Isabella Rossellini's apartment and her walls are the color of a vagina and he's hiding inside the vagina and seeing the violence of birth and death, quite literally, He's experiencing, and this is the power of Blue Velvet and everything else Lynch has done, but still the power of Blue Velvet is the entire movie exists in a mind space. And, you know, I'm the child of two psychiatrists who sat at, they sat at dinner every night and they talked about their patients. So, you know, I have, since I was a child, basically existed in my head, you know? And so, like, I'm very uncomfortable on location because the stage is like it's your head it's like a black box and you could put anything in it that you want you know and producers are always saying you know like what the producer secretary said let's go look at law offices we could use a location and i kind of laughed and i said no 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 i don't need to see law offices this is a lawyer's office that i made up in my head <laughs> you know so, and that's the same thing with rupture. You know, this is a place of the mind and she is confronting her own mind and her own limitations and her own barriers. That's the power. What was it like working with Peter Stromer? I adore Peter. I mean, he's, he's, an uh, I'll tell you two things about him before I please answer that question. He carries on his shoulder instead of like a normal uh, knapsack where you might keep your books or, you know, a shoulder bag, like a messenger bag or whatever we might carry. He carries like a children's Mickey Mouse or uh, Doc McStuffins or he carries like a, 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 a shoulder bag that like a 40-year-old would carry. And he's got a whole bunch of them. So that's number one. And number two, he would get out of his car every morning 
and he would stretch and he would yell at the top of his lungs, fuck you, Canada, to the, to the entire crew who were all Canadians, right? So, and they loved him for it. You know, so he's got this incredible winning charm. But here's the reason that I cast him. The reason I cast him was that when we started talking about might he be interested to play the part or might he not, he told me, when I go back one step, I said to him, you know, this movie is in some sense about a religious experience. It's about the religious experience of um, having a truly transformative event where uh, kind of an enlightenment experience, um, by the way, um, that allows you to see the truth of who you are. And there was a pause and he said, I wanted to be a priest when I was a boy. And he had this tremendous sense of God in his own life and a tremendous sense of um, religiosity. And that's what made him write for the movie. You know, like I was saying about casting people who felt like they had had a rupture, he had truly had a deep, deep religious experience. And uh, when he was a young man, which he carries with him to this day, and it, it, it um, makes him tremendously generous and at, a, at ease and giving. Um, so all of these qualities made his approach in the movie, A, what I wanted, but B, the very opposite of what you would expect, which is this is not somebody as the leader of this group of people who is perpetrating something ugly and, and, and grotesque on Numi Rapace. No, I didn't want that. I wanted somebody whose vision of it was that we are going to offer you the most important thing that could possibly happen to you in your entire life. And that's actually the spirit with which they're going about what they're doing. That's the key, you know, that they're not, they're not evil. They're, and they, they certainly, you know, there's, there's a great argument to be made that, that what they have done for her is entirely positive. You know, so you had to have somebody like that, you know. Um, you had to have somebody with, with, with all of these qualities that Peter has. Um, but he's also just incredibly joyful and generous. And not about himself at all. Not, not truly not about himself. So, uh, yeah, it's good. So you talked about all the pokers that you have in the fire. Do you know which one's going to uh, spark up next? Or are you still just kind of feeding the fi- fan in the flames? Well, you know, I mean, what I tell of my agents, uh, you know, is when I'm asked that question, because, you know, I got a lot of movies floating around out there. Um, my answer is always the same, which is whatever movie somebody's going to pay for is the movie I'm going to make. Because I, 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 I think that, um, that's, you know, first of all, these are all like children that I love these movies that I'm trying to make. It's, you know, I, I of course have preferences and so forth, but, um, I would be happy to make any of them. That's the truth. Um, so, uh, but I do ask myself, you know, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say there's eight projects that are ready to go and out there with producers. But I have a script that I'm like working on and I love it. I'm writing and, you know, I just ask myself the question, you know, like, how long am I going to keep developing and writing scripts that because they're too difficult or they're too whatever fill in the blank that 
I, you know, I mean, there's only so much weight your desk can bear of unmade script, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's a, it's a funny moment in that way because, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not, I, I wish that there was an, an answer to how movies are valued by financiers. You know, I mean, like the, the question that I would ask is, um, how is it possible that Black Swan with Natalie Portman was rejected by 75, 80 financiers um, in Hollywood? Um, and, and what was the reason? The, the reason was it was seen as an effete New York ballet movie that was weird, you know, and Darren Aronofsky was coming off a movie that didn't do so well, so he wasn't that hot. And nobody saw it. It took Brian Oliver, a complete unknown, it would put some money together from his family's friends to finance the movie. And I think it did, what, $342 million? So, you know, we live in a world where the judgment is being made entirely on erroneous criteria. But the judgment is made with absolute authority and... um you know, dis- despite the fact that over and over again, every weekend, 70, 80, 90 million dollar movies do no business whatsoever. We, we can still um, and, you know, repeatedly see a film like Black Swan passed upon. The commerciality of the movie is entirely missed. And, you know, that just continues to perplex me. It uh, frustrates me and saddens me because the only thing I really care about is just making my movies. That's all I really want to do, you know, is make the films and experience the experience with everybody who's involved, the crew and the cast, and, um, you know, make the movie as, as best and as deeply as possible. That's, that's, the, that's the experience that I want to have, and I'm totally happy in that experience. But it's like what you said about Keith Gordon, you know? I mean... You know, uh, what I think Orson Welles said he spent 10% of his time making the films that he made and 90% of his time looking for the money. Yeah, and he's one of the greatest directors who's ever lived and couldn't get money for, to make his own movies. Yeah, I mean, well, that list is long, you know, and, inclu- and includes, by the way, David Lynch for the last 15 years until now when he's, you know, making a sequel to Twin Peaks, but how is it possible that the guy who made Mulholland Drive wasn't Fort Knox should have opened up for him? I really and truly don't know. I, I can say without question, because I read a lot of scripts, because I get sent a fair number of scripts, I know that the scripts that I'm talking about trying to make are good, and that the movies will be will be strong. I had a list, I, I, you know, I was walking home today, and I thought, it would be so cool just to have a list of all the rejections that I've experienced in the last 10 years. I would love to see that list. Like it would be so long and people saying, people just saying, you know, no, we don't want to make that movie or the actor saying, no, I don't want to play that part. What lunatic would continue this? That's, that's the chart off question. I, I wish I had something else. I wanted to do as much. I do. I wish I had something else. I wanted to do as much. But I don't. That's just the truth. My wife sometimes says to me, you know, maybe you should just write novels and don't don't worry about making movies. And I just think I can't do that. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know. 
Ilya Kazan did it, he said, I'm not going to do that anymore, you know? Well, I think that's probably the most depressing place where I can end that interview. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, it's the realist, you know? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.